One of the benefits and blessings of expository preaching uh, through books of the Bible is that you end up addressing subjects you might not ordinarily choose to address. And this morning is one such subject. It's a very vital subject. In fact, the church rises or falls on it. Uh, and that subject is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me say also, I promised you when I became your pastor five and a half years ago that I would talk to you like you're adults. I was not going to coddle you or I wasn't going to uh, pamper you from the pulpit. I was going to just give you God's word as it is there and trust the Lord with the fruit and the results. If you end up coddling people and treating uh, the church family like they're a bunch of babies, you, you know what you get? You get a church full of babies. Uh, if you preach to them like they're adults, like they're mature, like you expect them to be mature, and if you preach and, and teach the Bible uh, just a little bit beyond where they are in their maturity, you'll raise them up and you'll get a, a church full of mature Christians. That's what we're going to do today. I doubt you've ever heard a message like you're going to hear today uh, because we're talking about church leadership and a church's responsibility to the pastor and the staff. And that's what we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's just laid out there. There are other texts as well that we may address in future days. But this is what we cover because we're going through the book of 1 Thessalonians and we're in chapter 2. The church that Paul planted and pastored for a while in Thessalonica was an effective church. Chapter 2 verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, I want to look also not only at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but I want you to turn to Galatians 4 and 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll get there uh, eventually, okay? Galatians 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we'll look at those passages in just a moment. But here in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 2, it's very clear that when Paul came there, the fruit of his ministry was evident and real. It was not a vain, empty visit. He was effective there in that place, and it was because he embraced some of the images that are found in this particular text. Now, I want to say to you, God has been very good to Beach Haven Baptist Church in the last number of years. In 2017, we had a growth rate of 3%. 2018, that's a growth rate of 3%. And 2019, we've had a growth rate of 10%. This past Sunday, Father's Day, we had 66 more this Father's Day than we did the previous Father's Day. We had about 90 more for VBS Celebration Day this year than we did the year before. God has been good to Beach Haven. And that is despite 60, about 60 funerals in our church family. And that is despite closing Building B for 2016 and 17 when the trust system failed. We lost 10% of our attendance in two Sundays because of that. Uh, giving went up, actually, but the truth is we closed the building. Sunday school got inconvenient, and so some people just abandoned us. We were really rocking and rolling then when we, uh, when we got to closing Building B, and it set us behind for a while. So this growth rate has been uh, a, a tremendous blessing, and God has done it. He's blessed us remarkably despite about 60 funerals and despite closing Building B. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but that actually puts Beach Haven in the top 3% of churches in the nation at that growth rate, according to Tom Rayner in a recent article that he has released. This cannot be said about churches across America. <clears throat> 
It is estimated that 20% of American churches will close by the year 2030. 20%. Nearly every one of them, traditional churches who've gotten stubborn and irrelevant and will not change to reach their community. Just about every one of them. Um, the truth is, is that in Southern Baptist life, it's not much better. We've had 18 years straight of decline in baptisms and in church membership. 18 years. Ladies and gentlemen, Southern Baptists are not only nowhere near winning North America, they are closer to losing the South. Because there's, some of them are stubborn, some of them won't change. They're so selfish and insecure regarding their traditions, they won't break loose in the power of the Holy Spirit to reach their community. Their attitude is, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with the truth, is what so many of them think. We made some changes and God has blessed us for it. So we're closer to losing the South than we are to winning North America. And eventually these numbers are going to catch up with us as Southern Baptists to the extent that we will threaten, we will threaten the funding of the International Mission Board. And instead of pressing forward in a day of great gospel openness around the world, we'll have to pull back. You cannot continue to decline in numbers, in baptisms, in membership just to hold on to tradition and continue to support the global mission of Jesus Christ. One day these numbers are going to catch up with us as Southern Baptists. Now, I, I, I hesitate to do this, but let me just go ahead and do it. And I won't do this often, but let me pull out my resume for just a minute and my own ministry history. I started ministry on church staffs when I was 19 years old at a small church in East Texas where I did music and youth. We didn't have a youth ministry. I got there and we were there for about two years, seven months, and God blessed it. By the time I left, we had about 20 teenagers. I went on to seminary, began to preach youth camps and conferences and revivals, and uh, got a platform. I was way too young, but handsome, good-looking thing. They just couldn't resist. And uh, I got to preaching and consulting with churches, got into seminary, began to do a lot of youth camps, and then went on staff at another church. I was there about 18 months. We went from 40 to about 55 teenagers in 18 months in a town that was not growing. Won them and baptized them and brought them to Jesus and really had the time of our lives. Really did. Sherry Michelle and I were married there at that place. I left there and went to pastor a church in low country, South Carolina. We got there in our first year. We went from 153 to 238 in a town and in a county that was in terrible decline. And we baptized that particular year more than the church had ever baptized in its history. God called me back to seminary to do a PhD, went from there, went to a church in North Carolina, and the five years I was there, we tripled in our attendance and continued to bring on staff and to increase our missions giving and um, uh, had consistent baptisms year after year. I left there and went to a smaller church in Alabama in a larger city and got there, and we doubled in the three years that I was there. Our baptisms went up, hired staff, and... Um, uh, our missions giving went up, and God blessed that place remarkably. I'm going to tell you, we got under the spout, and the glory came out in that place. Got the attention of the Georgia Baptist Convention Evangelism Office. I came there and consulted over four years with about 200 churches in their ministry, did tons of conferences and a variety of things, and consulted with leaders. Was, was, uh, I preached and taught and trained at least three times a week, sometimes as many as six times a week, usually four or five times a week. I almost never got to go to my church, Hebron Baptist in Decula, but the pastor Larry Wynn uh, said, I don't care, just send your family and your tithe, we'll be fine. 
That, that was a marvelous work and marvelous ministry. I learned a lot from them, and they actually called on me to help them with evangelism of all things. And I was terribly humbled by that, and then went to Southwestern Seminary to teach evangelism, where we saw a powerful and mighty evangelism resurgence, got to consult with churches, got to consult with the denominational uh, agencies and entities and other leaders across the SBC, got to participate, and this was very humbling to me, but got to participate in the Evangelism Brain Trust of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was marvelous. Now, let me tell you, I pull out my resume, and I won't do that very often, but I pull that out to make this point. The reason for our decline as Southern Baptists, the reason for our decline is not a lack of ministers. We've got more ministers than we've ever had before. It's not a lack of money. We've got more money than we've ever had before. It's not a lack of programs. We've got more programs than we've ever had before. Most of it is due to leadership that doesn't know how to lead, and even more, followship that doesn't know how to follow. That's it. Lee Robertson said, everything rises and falls on leadership. I would say also that the quality of leadership will not extend beyond the leader unless there is a decent followship. The problem with most Southern Baptists is that they want a deacon board to control the church or committees to control the church. They want to treat pastors and staff as employees instead of men of God. And everything is in chaos in these places. And they don't know what the Word of God teaches about leadership. They're going by traditions instead of going by Scripture. And may that never happen here. My promise to you as the pastor and our staff will make this promise as well. We promise to lead biblically. Even if it means we overthrow traditions. And we'll be sweet and kind. We'll be sweet and kind about it. We're not going to be haughty or arrogant. But we are not going to allow tradition, opinion, or any other human invention to keep us from going from the Word of God. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 makes it abundantly clear what we are to do. Now there's some other passages you can study besides this, uh, this chapter about leadership. There is also 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 22. There's Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17. There's 1 Peter 5, chapter, 1, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 as well. But I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today, where Paul explains how it is his ministry was effective in Thessalonica, and he built an effective church there. And the primary thing that we learn from this is that churches and lay people have got to clear a path for pastors and staff to lead according to the New Testament. It is the church's and the layperson's responsibility to clear the path, to remove obstructions for pastor and staff so that they can lead biblically. And there, there are several ways that they can do that. One, they clear a path for pastor and staff to serve first as stewards. Now, you may not be familiar with that term and that word, but it's an old-fashioned term that we really need to revive in our churches, and that is the doctrine of stewardship. The doctrine of stewardship says this, God owns it all, and he puts people in responsibility to manage it according to his will. And so the pastor and staff are stewards, according to the New Testament, over the ministry of the church. God says, I want it done this way, and we are to guard that it be done that way. 
And that's not just the pastor and staff, that's the church. And so we organize and we order the church and we lead the church in a way that manifests the fact that God is the owner and in the final analysis, it is only his voice and mind that matters. He's the owner of it all. Now Paul uses this kind of language in verse number 4 of chapter 2. Verses 1 through 6, he acts as a steward, but the language is found in verse number 4, the language of stewardship. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Now, because he was a steward, he persevered. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, we came out of Philippi after being beaten and abused, and we didn't flinch. We didn't modify our message. We didn't have more tact as a result. We didn't change our approach. Instead, we continued to declare the word of God. We persevered through tribulation. Hey, listen to me. No pastor and staff have two good days in a row. I I, I can tell you, it's just like the calendar. It's just like the sun and the moon, the stars, the rotation of the earth around the sun. If you have one good day, The next day, something's going to go downhill and fall over the cliff. Sometimes it happens in the same hour. And that's what Paul is reflecting here. So he persevered. There's the perseverance of stewardship, but then there's the pleasure of stewardship. Look what he says. We speak not as pleasing to men, but God who tests our hearts. Verse 5, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men. Boy, there's a lot of that going on. Either from you or from others, when we might have made demands for a $62 million jet as apostles of Christ. It didn't say that, I inserted that. But uh, I would take a helicopter. It's, it's tough getting from Bogart to church every Sunday, but anyway. But the pleasure of stewardship is not necessarily that we please the people. Now, we hope to. But you've got to place, when you're in ministry, you've got to place your pleasure and find your pleasure in pleasing God because, quite frankly, it's hard to please everybody all the time. Hey, you know something? Did you, were you able to please all your kids when they were coming up? Do you know what it's like to have to please 300 adults at one time? Our pleasure's not there. It can't be. We can't do it. There's just no way. Our pleasure has to be in pleasing Almighty God. And so churches and laypersons have got to clear the path for pastor and staff to serve as stewards. The fundamental rock-solid conviction of pastor and staff uh, is, is uttered by Ben Hayden. He said this, Right is right whether anyone else does it. Wrong is wrong even if everyone does it. Right is right even if no one does it. Wrong is wrong even if everyone does it. The pastor and staff have got to stand firmly in that place no matter which direction the culture or the church goes. They stand firmly as a witness to the righteousness and the truth of God. Now, I can hear some objecting, saying, wait a minute, you're an employee of the church. Well, biblically, that's wrong, and tax-wise, that's wrong. Actually, I'm self-employed by the IRS. But biblically, oh, no, never treat pastor and staff as employees. Oh, my goodness, that's horrible. That's never what the Scripture says, though there's a financial relationship between churches and Paul. 
You say, let, let me tell you why. You know how crazy that is. Let me demonstrate. Did you ever work in a place where you had supervisors above you who got crosswise with each other and used you as a pawn in their debate? What happens when you have supervisors above you and they don't see eye to eye and one gives you one direction and a few minutes later another gives you an exact opposite contradictory assignment? Do you know what happens to us every month? Every month we've got somebody say, turn it up. Turn it down, whether it's the music or the temperature. We've got that going on every month. And that's just my family, okay? That's not the rest of them. Now, I've got people say, dress up. Dress down. Do this, do that. Hey, man, your minds aren't together. Do you know that? Because you don't talk to each other. This is a big church. And so we, we, we just don't have that kind of place. You want a place like that? There, hey, look, folks, there's a church running 40 over in Walton County I can tell you all about where they all think the same. That's just not how it is in this place. So we, we, we can't have that approach. Instead, what pastor and staff do on their best days, and they better have a best day every day, they seek God and they do the will of God. They prioritize Him. And they're never willing to compromise it. And they pursue him. And that's our promise to you. And then I, I can hear somebody objecting, saying, well, who keeps you accountable? Let me tell you, the list of people who don't keep me accountable is shorter than the list of those who do. Now, let me turn it back. You're going to ask questions about accountability. Let me ask you, who is keeping you accountable? But don't ask about my accountability if you're not willing to take accountability. Most people asking about accountability aren't accountable themselves, I've discovered. So be very, very careful. Be careful, watch yourself. But let me just tell you who I'm accountable to. I'm accountable to my bride. And I'm accountable to my two daughters. They have a lot to say every Sunday when I get home. I'm accountable to our staff. I'm accountable also, and this isn't necessarily official, but I get close to our deacon chairman and our deacon officers. And I listen. That's what I do. And then I got about 300 adults Sunday by Sunday, and the staff does too, that we make ourselves accountable to. All right? Who are you accountable to? So, yeah. And you know what? Accountability is good. Oh, don't, don't ever resist that. Don't ever, ever, ever resent that. I can hear a third objection. Listen, if the church wants to do one thing and God wants us to do another and you push us to do what God wants us to do, won't you create controversy? Listen to me. If God wants one thing and a church wants another, there should be some controversy. There should be. And sweetly and tenderly, but forthrightly and transparently and strongly, pastors and staff should nudge churches into the will of God because they are stewards before God and we will have to give an account to Him where no one will ever be sitting on His throne but Jesus Christ Himself. So you've got to clear a path. In other words, never, ever tolerate a situation where any group or individual in a church, and we don't have this now. We don't have this now, so don't worry about it. But never, ever tolerate a circumstance where a person or individual in the church is intimidating pastor and staff into disobedience to God. Clear the path. Make it fruitful. Make it a blessing to obey God. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing. Clear the path for them to serve as stewards. But second, clear the path for pastor and staff to labor, and this might sound strange, but verses 7 and 8 bear it out, to labor as mothers. And I want you to look here in 1 Thessalonians 2 in a moment in Galatians 4. 
I've asked for permission to tell this story, but Luke went through real difficulty with his eye with a uh, mild autoimmune thing where he essentially lost his vision in his right eye due to inflammation. And in December, we went to uh, Emory Eye Center to have it uh, cleaned out uh, by some laser surgery. When we got there, it was cleaned out before the surgery. God answered your prayers. And the surgeon instead went in and cauterized some blood vessels in his eye that had grown and developed in response to the inflammation. And uh, Luke came out of that, and we went back to the hotel room. We had to spend the night because the next morning we had to go in for a checkup to the doctor. And we took a picture of him, and I think he requested it. He wanted us to send it to his sisters and brother. But in the hotel room, he was sitting on the bed, and this is just hours after the surgery, just a few hours after anesthesia. And he has this blue eye patch with white tape fixing it to his face, and he's sitting there with a smile on his face. After 10 months of medication, 10 months worth of trips to Emory, after this operating procedure, after a difficult time with anesthesia coming out of it, he is sitting on the bed with a very pleasant smile on his face. A few weeks ago, I was looking at that picture again, and I called him over, and I showed it to him. And folks, I lost it. That was one of the sweetest and most tender pictures I've ever seen in my life after everything that boy had been through. And I lost it. And I didn't have a very dignified cry. I had an ugly cry. In fact, I squalled. You know what a squall is? That's intense. That's intense. And while I was showing it to him, I just broke down and I, I just let it go. I couldn't hold it back anymore. And I didn't know that was in me at the time. A few weeks before, I had a similar experience. Once in a while, I'll go through and I'll list things that are bothering me. And I'll take them to God in prayer and be comforted. I don't think any of your names were on there, okay? About to put some of you on there now, but we'll let, we'll let it go for right now. But I made a list, and on that list was someone who broke my heart. I poured heart and soul into this person, and this person failed. And it hurt. Not with us today, okay? But it hurt. And I had a similar experience of sobbing like I did for my son. And in preparing this message this week, I thought, isn't that something? The intensity of the heart and emotion I had for my son was replicated in this experience with this particular person that broke my heart. And it's not that, it's not that I lowered my son's importance and value to the level of an ordinary person. My son's up here. And my affections and my commitment. It's that I took this person and elevated this person to the level of family. And that's what real ministers do. We make ourselves vulnerable and we are willing to hurt. We don't, we don't hide or shield our heart. We don't. Now that's why verses 7 and 8 in Galatians 4, 19 make so much sense to me more now. Look at verses 7 and 8 in 1 Thessalonians 2. 
We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Pastors and staff have a, if I can put it this way, a mother's heart for lay people in churches. Now look with me in Galatians chapter 4, a few pages back. And Paul uses a similar image, especially about labor, going into labor. And he labored until Christ was formed in them. Galatians 4.19 and 20. You can almost hear your own mother saying this. Galatians 4.19 and 20. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Look at verse 19 again. My little children, for whom I labor in birth until Christ is formed in you. In other words, Paul, like a mother, is trying to birth Christ's likeness into the church family into the Galatians. And in verse 20, he's concerned it isn't happening. On June 28, 1991, King Street First Baptist Church called me to be their pastor. And beloved, that was 28 years ago. In five days, it will have been 28 years ago. And I have to be real honest with you. For 28 years, I've been a pastor. And I feel like Paul did in verse 19. When Michelle's mother went into labor, and I want to be delicate, when Sherry Michelle's mother went into labor with her at a naval hospital in Naples, Italy, she was in dry labor for 36 hours. When Sherry Michelle was born, she was somewhat mangled, and it took a year for them to straighten her out. Arms, legs, face, all of that. Now, they did a good job. But her mother was in hard, dry labor for 36 hours. Friends, I feel like I've been in labor for 28 years. And there is never a break from it. And I don't want there to be. It takes supernatural intervention and strength from God to be a pastor and to be a staff member. Clear a path for us to act that way. But there's a third image. Not only a steward, not only a mother, but clear a path, clear a path for the pastor and staff to challenge as a father. Verses 10 through 12. And the image is found in verse number 11. But let's read verse 10. Your witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Fathers behave in a way and they speak in a way to their children because they have a vision for their future. For Paul, it was found in verse 12 for the Thessalonican Christians. And verse 12 is a great verse for dads to adopt for their own kids. They get a vision for them, they communicate it, and then they challenge them to fulfill it, and that's what pastors do. God gives the pastor a vision for the church The congregation catches it, and together we carry it out. The pastor cast it, the congregation catches it, and together we carry it out. And those are the words that Paul uses here in verse number 11. Exhorted, comforted, and 
charged them in this way. So look, look with me. Verse 7, pastors and staff are like mothers. Verse 11, they're like fathers. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want you to notice something here. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you notice here the parental child language in the text about the pastor and staff's relationship with the congregation? Did you notice this? Paul said, I'm like a mother, I'm like a father. And in that way, we've had an effective ministry. Now, Paul picks up on this also in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. He says, now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be burdensome to you. For I do not seek yours, but you. Now watch. Family language. For the children ought not lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. That's true, isn't it? Hey, when you go on family vacation, you've got your children and grandchildren with you. Who pays for it? All right. And you like it that way. Hey, when you take everybody to the steakhouse, what do you do when you carry your children and grandchildren to the steakhouse? You do two things. You go to the waiter and say, give me the check. And you look at the family and say, don't put sauce on it. That's what you do, okay? You pay for it. That's the way you want it. That's the way parents do with their children. They carry the burden, the financial burden. So Paul picks up on that in verse number 15. He says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The more abundantly I love you, the less you love me. So Paul picks up on this parental image. And says, just as parents provide for children, so I am going to spend everything I've got on you. I'm going to expend my resources on building you up. Hey, that's what they did for you when you were younger. When, when, you, were, when you were a child, when you were a teenager, when you were a young man, young wife, young husband, young mother, young father with small children, what happened? The middle adults and the senior adults built a worship center for you. They, they built facilities for you. They gave for you. They supplied. And that's the way churches do that. Ladies and gentlemen, our Great Commission's Facilities Committee will one day come back with a recommendation for what to do with our facilities to reach our community for Jesus Christ. And please, let it never be heard that anyone said, well, they're going to do something for the young people and expect the old people to pay for it. That's what they did for you when you were young. And you resent that now? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not how we act. That's not how we think. Parents lay up for the children. Therefore, I will gladly spend and be spent for the sake of your souls. We don't resent that. We do it gladly. And by the way, let me just say, when it comes to that time, when we give to this particular project, when we give to this project, make sure that you can do verse number 15 or don't give at all. Verse 15 again, look what it says. I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Don't anyone give to anything the Great Commission's Facilities Committee brings to us unless you can do it gladly. We're not that desperate. 20 years ago, we did a building program and one of our deacons went to uh, someone to talk with them about giving and the man got angry and threw him a measly check and this deacon gave it back to him. He wasn't going to take it. Not unless we are glad. Listen to me. You need to understand God gave you your wealth. 
And if you get haughty and pompous, God can take it away. Be careful. Watch yourself. You surrender to God. You do what God wants. He is Lord of all. And so when it comes to all of these issues, we embrace this family image is what we do. Gladly I will spend and be spent for the sake of your souls. Now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. So we challenge as a father. Now the effective church does this. The effective church and effective lay people clear the path for pastor and staff to obey God as stewards, to love and to labor as mothers, to challenge as fathers, but there's a final thing. Effective, uh, or, or, uh, effective churches and lay people clear the path for pastor and staff to speak as prophets. Verse number 13. Paul makes that clear. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Now the result is verse number 19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Here Paul speaks as a prophet and because of that the church was effective. In verses 13 and 14 they welcomed the word. In verse 13 they implemented the word. In verses 14 to 16 they clutched to the word even in persecution. Verses 17 through 20 they radiated the word. That's how much they appreciated the straight preaching of the Word of God. Effective churches and lay people expect pastors and staff to preach the oracles of God as recorded in the Word of God. Just to deliver it and give it, and they clear a path, and they do not tolerate. They do not uh, tolerate an atmosphere where pastor and staff are intimidated to preach the Word of God. It should be the most peaceful thing that the pastor does. And that staff do when they stand with an open Bible and declare the oracles of Almighty God as found in His Word. We clear a path for it. That's, what, that's how a church can become effective. When there's good leadership and when there is this kind of fellowship, a church does not need to have a ministry that is in vain. Well, what do I do? Oh, you've got to begin right. You've got to do what verse 13 says. Look what he says here in verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of man, but as it really is, the word of God. Hey, we've had some celebrations in our family lately. We had a graduation celebration, and I'll never forget... Uh, Sarah Kate got loaded up with gifts with her high school graduation. And you know, when the gifts came her way, she didn't balk at any one of them. She received every one of them. And what God is offering you today is he's offering you the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and his life in this life and the next. Don't balk at it. Take that gift like you would a graduation gift. In fact, receive that gift as you would a check for a million dollars because it's much more valuable than that. 
John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, gave he the right to be the children of God, even those that believe on his name. If you'll turn away from whatever keeps you from Jesus Christ and reject it and receive this gift that God is giving you in Jesus Christ, you then have the legal authority and the endorsement of heaven to be a child of God with all the benefits that come from it. Who could ever say no to that? You see, Jesus bled at the cross and rose again from the dead in order to secure that for you. He has done all the purchasing necessary. He's paid the price and now it is a gift to you. To as many as received him, gave he the right to become the children of God, even those that believe on his name. I believe you want to do that today and I want to pray for you. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for what you